Well, let's now turn our attention to the Word of God. We're going to be looking at John chapter 19, verses 28 through 42. So this will close out chapter 19, which means we only have two chapters left. John 19, 28 through 42, that's on page 906 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, as we come before your word this morning, once again, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Please show us the truth of this passage. Show us the the true meaning of, of these verses. Impress upon our hearts and minds your revelation to us about Jesus Christ and his work for us. And we pray that we would also be able to take this teaching that you're giving us from your word and apply it. Help us to be better equipped to serve you and worship you and live out our lives for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you a list maker? Do you create to-do lists and cross them off once they're completed. There's something very satisfying about writing out a list and then being able to check off all the boxes. It kind of gives us a sense of completion. We might even tell ourselves, good, that's done. It it just feels good to, to check off all the boxes. Well, we make our own lists, but the world is full of lists Uh, If you can remember back to your junior high U.S. Constitution test, I think we all had to take that before we could graduate eighth grade. And if you remember, there were boxes to check for becoming president. You had to be a natural-born citizen of the U.S. You had to be at least 35 years old, and you have to be a resident of the U.S. for 14 years. If someone doesn't have all those boxes checked, then they're ineligible for office. It's not good enough to have one checked or two checked. You have to have all three checked. And it's not just president. To be a a barber in the state of Illinois, you have to be at least 16 years old. You have to complete a 1,500-hour program of study at an approved school. You have to pass an examination. You have to pay a fee. No surprise there. We're in Illinois. You have to obtain an Illinois barber's license. So all those boxes have to be checked or you cannot be a barber in Illinois. It's just that simple. In John 19, verse 30, John records Jesus saying, it is finished. And what he means by that is Jesus has checked all the boxes. Jesus has not left one thing undone that the Father has sent him to do. He has completed it all. And this morning, we're going to talk about some of those boxes that Jesus checked. We're going to talk about why it's important to have a Savior that has checked all those boxes. And as usual, there are, there are a lot of things in this passage. There's, there's a couple things we might have to, to dig a little deeper on. There, there are a couple um, nuggets that need explaining, and we'll get through all that. But the primary focus this morning 
is looking at Jesus' accomplished work and him being able to say, it is finished for us. So let's read this passage, chapter 19, starting at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath that Sabbath was a high day, the Jewish asked Pilate and their, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he had already was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Verse 28 begins, after this, Jesus knowing that all was finished. Let's stop right there before we go any further. What does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, it is finished, or knowing that all was now finished? It means he's checked all the boxes. It means he's completed everything. Everything he was anointed to do and sent to do by the Father is done. It's finished. Earlier, Jesus said in John four thirty four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus was not finished until he was able to cross off and check every single box, until he was able to cross off every single item that the Father had given him to complete. The church has historically divided Jesus' work up into two broad categories, his active obedience and his passive obedience. And just in order for us to get a handle on this, a good quick visual, I want us to think of us uh, holding a clipboard that has two sheets of paper. So the top sheet says active obedience, and then we flip that over. The second sheet says passive obedience. And on each of these sheets, we've got boxes next to the, some statements, some things that he needs to accomplish 
and he's going to check off each one of those. So let's go through this list. So we've got our clipboard out, the top sheet, active obedience. First, functioning as the second and last Adam. That's one of the things that Jesus was sent to accomplish. He was sent to function as the second and last Adam. Where Adam got it wrong, Jesus got it right. What Adam couldn't do, Jesus did. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus perfectly fulfilled every single aspect of the law. Jesus perfectly obeyed every single one of the Ten Commandments. Adam did not. Adam failed. Adam sinned. Adam broke God's word. Jesus succeeded. He kept God's word. He never did break God's law. So Jesus achieved a perfect record of righteousness through his representative obedience. Check. Accomplished. Number two, fulfilling the law. He came to show the truest and most full meaning of the law and its fullest authority. If we were to go back in the Gospel of Matthew and turn to chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, at more than one place during that teaching, Jesus says something like this, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and what he's doing when he makes those comments is he's saying to his listeners and to us through scripture, I don't care what you've heard in the past. I don't care what you've been taught by someone else. It doesn't matter what your understanding of this law and of scripture has been in the past. I am now going to tell you the truth. I am now going to tell you exactly what this means. I'm going to tell you exactly what the Father intended when he gave you this law. And I'm going to show you in my person and in my teaching how the law functions. I'm going to show you what it means. So Jesus did not come to remove the moral law. He came to fulfill it. He came to show us its fullest meaning and to establish its proper authority. Jesus did that. Check. Number three on our top sheet, fulfilling the messianic prophecies of scripture, doing everything that the Old Testament scriptures said that the Messiah would do. And we spent a long time on this last week. We used the whole Texas covered with silver dollars illustration. We showed how impossible it would be for someone to randomly or accidentally fulfill every single Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. It just can't be done. Every time we see one of the gospel writers say something like, in order to fulfill the scriptures, or this was to to fulfill the scriptures, every time we see that, they're saying Jesus is who he says he is because he is the only one who has fulfilled every single one of these scripture prophetic writings. He has checked every single box, all three or 400 or however many there are in the Old Testament. He's checked them all. He's done it. So, functioning as the second and last Adam, check. Fulfilling the law, check. And fulfilling the messianic prophecies, check. These are all grouped under what's called his active obedience. All right, let's flip over the top sheet. Now we're on the second sheet. Passive obedience. Passive obedience. Number one, Jesus submitting to the cross, willingly allowing himself to be led away and nailed to a cross as a sin substitute 
for the elect. This includes shedding his blood, giving his life as an atoning, atoning means covering, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the elect. Check. He's done that. Two, offering himself up as a ransom payment to secure the spiritual release of guilty sinners, namely the elect. Check. He's done that. And number three, receiving the wrath of God for the sins of the elect upon himself. And before we check that off, this is one of those things where we want to make sure we understand what's happening in scripture, what happened on the cross. So we we need to drill down a little deeper on what it meant for Jesus to receive the wrath of God for the sins of the elect on the cross. So I, I want us, first of all, to understand that Jesus, in paying for our sin and receiving the wrath of God, did more than physically suffer on the cross. Maybe your experience was different, but when I was a child and growing up in the church and attending Sunday school, I had several well-meaning teachers and, and pastors that would place a heavy emphasis on the physical suffering of Christ. They would talk in detail. They would go into the medical descriptions. They would talk in detail about the process. They would talk about the nail that was driven in the, in the wrist and how there's certain nerves and that would make the pain excruciating. And then they would look at us kids and they say, can you imagine how bad that would feel? Can, would you ever want that done to you? And we were scared. We would say, no, I, I, that sounds terrible. I don't want it, that to ever happen to me. There was a heavy emphasis on the physical aspect of Jesus' suffering. Now, we don't want to downplay that. It was excruciating. He did suffer physically, but that was not Jesus receiving the wrath of God for the sins of the elect. The three hours of darkness between the sixth hour and ninth hour, that would be 12 noon and 3 p.m., under our reckoning of time, is when Jesus took the wrath of God for the sins of the elect. Let's dispel this myth also that Jesus, after he died on the cross, went down into hell and from Friday at the moment of death until Sunday at the moment of resurrection, Jesus was in the place of hell being tormented uh, by demons and, and by Satan with his, his pitchfork or something like that. That is not what happened. And I know we don't have time for it this morning. I know the Apostles' Creed, some versions say, descended into hell. Again, there's an explanation for that. We're not going into it right now. But suffice to say, that is not what happened. Jesus was not sent to hell. And we know that uh, from Luke, Luke 23, 43, this is one of the reasons why we know that he went immediately into the presence of the Father. Luke 23, 43 says, and he said to him, this is Jesus speaking to the uh, criminal on the cross that was forgiven by Christ, who repented and was forgiven. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not three days from now, not after I take a quick bypass kind of detour through hell and then back up. No, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no going to hell for Jesus. Jesus took the wrath of God for the sins of the elect when he was on the cross during those three hours of darkness 
That is when Jesus experienced utter spiritual darkness on the behalf of all believers. It has been observed by more than one person that God is God and he can pour out his wrath anywhere. It doesn't, Jesus did not have to be in the location of hell to experience hell. Jesus did not have to be in hell to experience the wrath of God. God could most certainly and did pour out his wrath on the cross. Now I can see someone raising a hand of objection here and saying, hold on a second, Pastor. Um, the math just doesn't add up. Because what you're telling me is Jesus paid for all the sins, for all the elect during that three-hour period. But I, I've been thinking about this. And there are millions and millions of, of believers. There are going to be millions of people in the kingdom of God. And each one of those people rightly deserves an eternity in hell. And you're telling me that Jesus took millions of eternities worth of punishment in three hours. And it doesn't seem like it would fit. The, the math just doesn't seem to add up. Well, I want to read a quote, and then I'm going to expand on it. I want to read a quote from Doug Kelly. He used to be the Richard Jordan Professor of Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's retired now. He's still teaching and, and writing. Um, this is one of the most succinct descriptions I've found on it. Here it is. Because he, Jesus, is the God-man and thus infinite in being and holiness, three hours of the intense sufferings of the pains of hell on Calvary, uh, on Calvary are more than equivalent to an endless eternity of grief, capital G, in the lake of fire appropriate to all who reject the all-sufficient propitiation provided by God. Do you see what he's saying here? Because Jesus is Jesus, because Jesus is not only fully and truly man, but also fully and truly God, his divinity is, is infinite. He is the only one who is in a position to receive millions of eternities worth of wrath upon himself in the span of three hours. So I, I don't want us to think of it in terms of a math problem where you've got this much quantity and this, and this amount of time and it has to somehow fit in the box. It should be more thought of as a spiritual accomplishment performed within the Godhead. Okay? We're, we're not comparing apples to apples. If there were anyone else, they would be unable to accomplish what Jesus accomplished. No one else would be able to receive the punishment for, for the, the elect. Only an infinite Savior can receive an infinite amount of wrath. Only Jesus can check that box. Only Jesus. So we're still on that second sheet. Let's, let's wrap it up. Shedding of this blood is an ultimate and final atoning sacrifice. Check. Offering himself as a ransom payment to secure our status as guilty sinners under the curse of the law. Check. And receiving the wrath of God for the sins of the elect during those three hours of darkness. Check. All of these things he passively accomplished on the cross. So everything the Father had given to him to accomplish, both his active and passive obedience, was 
finished or almost finished. Uh, Verse 28 is describing the point where the three hours of darkness are over. He has received the wrath of the sins of the elect, but he's still on the cross. He has not given up his spirit yet. And he doesn't say it is finished until verse 30. So we're almost there. There's one more thing that needs to be accomplished. One more box to check. Jesus said, I thirst. And John tells us to fulfill the scripture or to complete or, or to fill up what is lacking. So there's still one more thing lacking, one more thing left undone that needed to happen before he died. And that was the drinking of the sour wine. And that's a fulfillment of Psalm 69. One last Old Testament prophecy that he had to fulfill. Psalm 69, 21 says, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, sharp readers of the gospels will remember that Jesus was offered a drink at the beginning of his crucifixion and he rejected it. And now all of a sudden at the end, he says, okay, now I'll take the drink. And we might be wondering about the inconsistency there. Uh, Matthew 27, 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. There's the rejection. So why did he drink the one at the end and not at the beginning? Well, first of all, the first drink they offered to Jesus was wine mixed with gall. This was a sedative. This was um, something offered to the condemned man as he was about to be nailed to a wooden crossbeam. So this was kind of like one last act of kindness to to a to a dead man. This is kind of like offering the cigarette to the to the man who's about to get shot by the firing squad. And Jesus refused that. He didn't want to deaden the pain. He wanted to be fully awake. He wanted to be fully feeling as he hung on the cross. He didn't want to be artificially doped into a desensitized physical state as he performed his mediatorial work on the cross. So that's why he rejected the first drink. The second drink, the one he's been taking right now, this was sour wine. So this was different. This was not a sedative. This was the drink that the soldiers were using. This was the drink that the soldiers took a, took a swig from as they were out in the hot sun in the Middle East, in the middle of the day. So this, this was the, the beat up old yellow uh, igloo 10-gallon cooler strapped to the back of the truck on the work site. Okay? When they, they were working, when they got thirsty, they went and took a drink. That's what Jesus is drinking this time. And the reason he accepted this drink is because he had just concluded receiving the wrath of God. And he wanted to revive himself physically as much as possible so that he could confidently and boldly declare his finished work and voluntarily give up his life. So verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, Now that that last box has been checked, that psalm has been fulfilled, all his active and passive obedience accomplished, now he could say his final words. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. He willingly did that. He voluntarily did that. His last words, words were a shout of victory. Luke, Luke twenty three forty six says, 
Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So we need to keep in mind, Jesus said, it is finished, not I am finished. He was completely in control on the cross. His life was not being taken from him. His life was being laid down willingly. Uh, John 10, 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. His death was his choice. Jesus gave up his spirit voluntarily. That's a strong finish. Jesus crossed the finish line and broke the tape sprinting. Verses 31 and 34, legs not broken, side pierced. We have this description of how even in his death, Jesus was fulfilling scripture. But first we have another example of the Jewish hypocrisy. They, they had just succeeded in killing, murdering an innocent man. And then they're standing around in their robes, uh, you know, thinking, well, we should probably take that body down. Uh, that's not going to look good on this high holy day of, of the, the Sabbath during Passover. So they go back to Pilate. Again, remember they had a power struggle uh, just moments earlier. They go back to Pilate again and say, hey, um, can we speed this up a little bit? Um, can, you, can you do the thing where you, you, know, you break their legs and they, they die faster? Um, we just we don't want it hanging around tomorrow. Um, that would be great if you could do that. By breaking the legs of someone hanging on the cross, it ensured a very rapid death. The, the, the victim was positioned in such a way that they had to push up. Uh, they, they were in this grotesque position where everything was crumpled up. And at, at one point, they, they start to begin to have to push up to take a breath. And if they, they can't push up with their legs, then, then they don't take a breath. So once the legs are broken, it's not long before the victim dies of his asphyxiation. So they break the legs of the two criminals, but then they could see that Jesus was already dead. They didn't need to break his legs, but yet uh, a determined soldier, <clears throat> excuse me, wanted to make sure. So a, a quick spear thrust to the chest cavity was made. And immediately, John says, at once there came out blood and water. And as you can imagine, there have been critics of, of the Bible and, and, and just uh, naysayers towards Christianity, and they look at this and they say, well, that's, that's not even possible, is it? Um, yes, it is possible. Um, that's fairly straightforward. Medically, by, by those who know a lot more about these things than I do, it's been shown that when a chest cavity is severely injured, up to two liters of hemorrhagic fluid can build up between the lining of the rib cage and the lining of the lungs, and apparently the fluid separates with the, the darker red portion to the bottom and the lighter clear portion on top. So if the thrust was made in the bottom, um, both could come out and you could see both blood and water. But the, the more difficult to answer part uh, of this question of blood and water is why did John include it? Because if you've been with us through this journey of John, you know that he does not include any detail without a purpose. There is a reason everything that is written in the word of God has been written for us. So why did he include this detail? 
Well, some have said that because the popular Jewish and Greek thought of the day was that the body was made of blood and water, it was a way to show us that he really died. So John's saying, look, the, the elements of life spilled out of him, so he, he really was dead. But uh, that seems kind of redundant because he's already told us that Jesus gave up his spirit in verse 30, and then in verse 33, he tells us Jesus was dead, so it, it doesn't really seem to fit. Uh, some have said we're supposed to see the two sacraments represented here, the water representing baptism and the blood representing the Lord's table. But there's really no reason within the text itself to, to kind of lead us in that direction. There's nothing that's talking about the sacraments here. That kind of seems like something laid upon the text by somebody who wants to see that kind of symbolism. I mean, there, it's a long list. Others have seen uh, the, the piercing the side as symbolic of the door in the side of Noah's Ark. Some have thought since Eve was formed from a rib from Adam's side, we should think of Adam when we see this. Uh, something was designed to point us to sanctification and, and justification. I mean, it just goes on and on. But I think the best way to answer this is to look at the immediate context and the wider biblical context of the book of John. How has John used blood and water within this book? And if we go back and look at that, John six fifty three. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Likewise, John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So John has used both blood and water to point us towards life in Jesus Christ. I think that's the most responsible interpretation of the meaning of John including this blood and water is to point people to life in Christ. As, as, as life extinguishes from, from Jesus, he is uh, providing the means by which we can have life. And then we have interjected John's testimony, verses 35 and 37, he who saw it, has borne witness. This book was written by somebody who was there. John was standing at the cross watching this happen. That's the person who wrote these words down. He's saying, I know what I'm talking about because I was there. I saw it. He says his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. It's, we can almost... Here, John kind of reaching out across time and, and, and grabbing the reader by the shirt and saying, hey, listen to me. I was there. I'm, I'm telling you these things so you can believe. I don't want you to die in your sins. Believe in Jesus. And he's making a, a passionate plea. And, th and then he gets out his, his trowel and he scoops up some mortar and he grabs a brick in the other hand and he lays down two more pieces of evidence in the, the wall of fulfilled prophecies. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's Exodus twelve forty six, just like the Passover lamb. And they will look on him who they have pierced. That's Zechariah twelve ten. Have have we talked about how impossible it is for anyone to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies? Yeah. Jesus checked all the boxes and John is going out of his way to say, I was there and he checked them all. That's what his testimony 
is saying to us. And then finally, the burial of Jesus. We've got verses 38 through 42. In this last section, we've got Jesus' burial, and then we have um, recorded for us two disciples that are involved with his burial. The first disciple mentioned is Joseph of Arimathea. We know nothing about this man before or after the burial of Jesus. The only thing we know about Joseph of Arimathea is what is written about him in the gospel accounts describing Jesus's burial. So Matthew says he was a disciple. Mark tells us he was a respected member of the council. That means the Sanhedrin. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate. We understand that. Luke describes Joseph of Arimathea as a good and righteous man who did not consent to the Sanhedrin's decision or action. So even though he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he did not vote yes to crucify Jesus. And then John states that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And this is interesting because it says he was a secret disciple. And then the very next uh, line says that he asked Pilate to take away the body of Jesus, which tells us what? It's not a secret anymore. You, you can't hide that. Not only are there going to be witnesses that, that watch him go up and take the body down from the cross. That's going to get around. But he was laid in his own tomb. He owned that property. He owned the tomb and Jesus was put in there. You can't hide that. So Joseph of Arimathea went public with his belief and his affinity for Jesus. He was not a secret disciple anymore. The second man who is highlighted is Nicodemus. And in case we forgot who that was, John reminds us. He says, was the one who earlier had come to Jesus by night. So this is Nicodemus from chapter 3 that, that was also timid and didn't want to be really seen with Jesus during the day. He came at night. And remember, this is the same man that Jesus said, you must be born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus comes bringing mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, usually 75 pounds of just about anything is expensive. This would have been very expensive. Sometimes these things were imported. So this was a great personal cost uh, of Nicodemus. He's also acting in the daytime. So he's openly declaring himself as a follower of Jesus. So with this burial, we have an example of two disciples that have made the journey from curious seekers or um, you know, partway belief or I'm not sure about this guy yet all the way to full-on public disciples. They, they have grown. They, they have moved forward into discipleship. These, these are people who are now willing to declare their allegiance to Christ publicly. And this is where genuine belief leads. It leads to open, public, unafraid, unashamed discipleship. Is that where we are today? Are, are, are we open and public with our discipleship? Do people know our allegiance to Christ? Do your coworkers know where you stand? Do your neighbors know where you stand? 
Does your extended family and, and your friend group, do they, do they know where you stand? Do they know what you believe and why you believe it? Or are we still kind of afraid? Are we, are we still kind of hanging out in the dark? Are we still kind of afraid? We're, we really don't want to, to play, pray over the meal in the restaurant because, you know, somebody might think we're weird. This is where discipleship naturally leads. Open, unafraid, unashamed attachment to Jesus Christ. Well, John concludes by telling us they went through the process of preparing the body. It was Friday. Mentions that again. And he places it in the garden tomb. So Jesus, through his life and on the cross, checked all the boxes. If you're not in Christ here this morning. I hope that this passage has, has shown you it is impossible to check off the boxes for your salvation. You can't do it. I can't do it. The apostle Paul can't do it. Nobody can do it. Only Jesus has checked all the boxes. I, we're, we're not perfectly righteous. We, we can't save ourselves. We can't nail ourselves to a cross as an acceptable sacrifice to God. We're not God's Messiah. We haven't fulfilled any of the Old Testament prophetic passages. And we can't check off any of the boxes in our own strength. I mean, we can no sooner save ourselves than we can reach out and touch the moon with our own fingers. It just can't be done. But what is impossible for us to accomplish, Jesus accomplished. And Christ promises to receive all who come to him. That's a promise. If you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, he will forgive you. He will receive you into his kingdom. He will grant you full and complete pardon for every sin that you have ever committed in your entire life. Every sin that you committed when you were a child. Every sin that you committed in high school. Every sin you committed as a young adult, every party, every, every sin committed at college, every sin committed in, in military service, every sin committed as an adult, every sin committed at work, every sin committed against your spouse, every sin committed in your heart, Sins of, of greed, coveting, lust, anger, pride. Every single sin that you have accumulated over your entire life, Jesus says, I will forgive you. All you have to do is turn to him in faith. Believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I will do that today. The thief on the cross was saved today. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, you will be forgiven today. There's no waiting period. There's no probation period. He says today. It's just that simple. If you're a part of his church, if you're repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, then you know the peace and the joy that comes from having a savior who has accomplished everything for you. You have been forgiven. You know the present and the eternal security of having Jesus accomplished everything on your behalf. 
You have experienced the grace of God and you have a Savior who has done it all. With his blood, he has paid for every last sin that you have ever committed or ever will commit. Check. His perfect life of obedience has been credited to your account. Check. He has taken upon himself the eternity in hell that you deserve. Check. We need a Savior who has checked all the boxes and has accomplished everything for us on our behalf. And we have one in Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise for securing our salvation, for going to the cross, for taking the wrath that we rightly deserve upon yourself, and for, as scripture says, lifting us up into the heavenly realm, the heavenly places, seated with you, co-heirs, having been given every spiritual benefit, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Father, we thank you for our salvation. And may a full and better understanding and knowledge of our salvation propel us into deeper discipleship, more joyful service, and a desire to proclaim this good news to those who you place in our path. Amen. Let's now stand and sing our song of response, Great Are You, Lord.